Well, sir, um, could I trouble you for a glass of warm milk? It helps put me to sleep. You could trouble me for a warm glass of... Shut the hell up! Now you will go to sleep, or I will put you to sleep. Check out the name tag. You're in my world now, Grandma. All right, ladies and gentlemen, here we go. Next seminar up April 14th through the 16th. That only has a few spots left, so don't delay if you're considering that. After that, June 9th through the 11th, then August 11th through the 13th. We have a couple self-sufficient lifter camps on the list, May 13th in Wichita Falls and May 20th in Omaha at Testify Strength and Conditioning. We have a couple camps going on in Seoul, South Korea with the Seoul Brothers. That's on April 9th. In the morning, there'll be a squat camp. In the afternoon, it'll be a deadlift and power clean camp. And if you sign up for both, you get $40 off. For squat and deadlift camps on the list with spots available, April 30th in Baltimore at 5x3 Training and Singapore on June 18th at Hygieia Strength and Conditioning. We also have a squat and deadlift camp going on in Mexico on March 25th with a few spots left. And finally, a squat press and deadlift camp, that's a three-lift camp going on in Brussels, Belgium at Brussels Barbell on April 22nd with one spot left at the time of this recording, so don't delay. If you're not part of the Starting Strength Network, you are missing out. Sign up for the Starting Strength Network, get full access to all the video versions of the podcast, a private forum, direct connection with RIP, where you can be chided personally in a small, comfier environment. Check out the Starting Strength Network at network.startingstrength.com and sign up today. And as usual, for more information on anything that I've talked about, head over to startingstrength.com and check out the right-hand side of the homepage. From the Asgard Company Studios in beautiful Wichita Falls, Texas, from the finest mind in the modern fitness industry, the one true voice in the strength and conditioning profession, the most important podcast on the internet. Ladies and gentlemen, Starting Strength Radio. Welcome back to Starting Strength Radio. We are pleased to be joined with our guest, Will Morris. Today, Will has been part of the Starting Strength community for quite some time, and uh, he is uh, finally finishing up his commitment to the United States Army here in a few days, and he will be uh, on the loose. He'll be running around loose, you know, just like pretty soon. So, ladies, be careful. <laughs> just to get your ass in trouble. <laughs> right? Well, well, thanks for being with us, man. Uh, no, I appreciate you having me. Why don't you tell the boys and girls of the audience exactly what the hell's going on? <clears throat> Depends on what you want. What you want my opinion on? Well, I just what, what your opinion on what you've been doing for the past ten years? Ah, all right. So about uh, eleven. Uh, how, what That'd did, be twelve years. ago. What did we say? It was two thousand eleven. Two thousand eleven. Yep. Yeah, two thousand eleven. I was a communications officer in the army. I'd been in for about eight years at that point. I just finished up a combat deployment to Afghanistan, and decided that I didn't want to be a computer technician for the rest of my life um it was like office space if you ever seen mm-hmm. that movie it was like every, yeah. every day mm-hmm. was the worst day of my life right, doing that. Right. So, <laughs> so i decided that i wanted to do something else so i applied to physical therapy school and you were actually in alaska at the time you were doing a seminar for the airborne infantry battalion i was a staff officer at. yeah we went up there and uh and 
at the at the as a result of uh, Will's invitation, we went up there and uh, did a seminar for uh, the boys in the gym there for a week, and uh, yeah, it was a nice trip. We got to drive up to Talkeetna and see the you can see the mountain, you know, 150 miles away in in the in the looming distances quite an interesting landscape different than north texas oh yeah much different. quite a bit different than north texas pleasant change of pace so uh yeah we were in the we're in the middle of that seminar and then that's whenever i got the call that i'd been accepted into baylor's physical therapy school and you were the first person that actually knew outside of me like you knew before micah yeah and micah was in the building at the time but yeah you just <laughs> just wasn't standing right there. yeah you were standing right at the rack and you were rolling a barbell back and forth trying to find one that wasn't bent and you're the first person good luck and, and i'll always remember you you said congratulations and then you said are you sure this is what you want to do <laughs> and we're going to get into why that is a yeah, reasonable but yeah for sure response here in just a little while yeah, but since then, so I went to started physical therapy school in 2011, graduated 2014. Been an orthopedic physical therapist since then. I've several places in the army. My last position before I came here, like I ran physical therapy for the U.S. Army forces in Korea. So I had a large, large staff um, of physical therapists, occupational therapists, and stuff that worked for me. And then most recently, I went to Carlisle Barracks. Um, there in Pennsylvania, and I'm the physical therapist for the Army War College, which is a senior service college for Army officers. Um, individuals that are lieutenant colonel, promotables, colonels, those that mm-hmm. have a shot of brigade command or general officership. Well, and all that since 2014. So that's, yep. a, that's a nice little... Uh, uh, climb up the ladder in a fairly short period of time. Isn't yeah, it? but it's time to go. Yeah, well, I, I, I've hit my expiration know, date. You, you've hit your exploration, your expiration date, and um, a lot of things in 2023 are hitting their expiration date. And it's good that you're able to uh, make a clean getaway. Yep, I'll be at twenty years twenty years of service in July, but I'll have a retirement date first of first of November. Well, done. there we go, man. What we originally conceived this podcast to be about is uh, is gym injuries, and uh, my having been in the gym business for forty seven years has provided me with a a base of experience both personally and professionally with injuries of all types and uh, being the hard-headed fucker that i am i've always just trained through everything because in in retrospect there's no other way to do it if you're going to get hurt whether you get hurt in the gym or more likely hurt outside the gym it's going to affect your training and you you've got to figure out a way if you want to train you're going to have to figure out a way to train through an injury it's it's required if you can't do it you can't be a lifter if you want to be a lifter you're going to have to learn how to deal with discomfort you have to learn how to rehab your own injuries and one of the first things you learn no matter what else you learn about injuries is that when you get hurt in the gym, 
don't go to the doctor. Don't go to the doctor. Unless you're bleeding or maybe even not even then. Bleeding that you can't stop. The bleeding you can't stop yourself. <clears throat> or you have a broken bone which is moving around in unusual ways. Or you become unconscious and you can't say, no, I don't want to go to the doctor. You don't go to the doctor. And the reason you don't go to the doctor is because they don't know what the hell to do anyway. Uh, I think Will is, uh, who comes from a lifting background, is we've got several, uh, uh, we have several uh, physical therapists associated with us at Starting Strength that have a background in, in strength training and who are far, far better at dealing with injuries that have to be dealt with in the gym than the general public, than doctors, and certainly than physical therapists do because we take a different approach to this. And I don't, I think that our approach is more useful. And uh, in a minute, I'm going to tell you why I think it's more useful, and I'll, we'll just discuss my little theory about this. But what what is your take on on uh, injuries in the gym? What do you, what's your the most <clears throat> common ones? What do you do about them? What do you not do about them? Well, I mean, the the most common one by far, by leaps and bounds, is just going to be minor muscle strains. That's going to be you're going to see that uh, it's almost ubiquitous with training, and I mean, hell, it happens when people you know pick an amazon uh, box up off the ground but mm-hmm. but percentage wise it's it's mostly muscle strains that that's, that's going to make up the vast majority of them but most most people don't really care about those too much no well, most people that have been alive and outside <clears throat> and stuff understand that that's just part of being alive and you just you you they heal yeah, I think that it, people are going to complain most about back injuries, especially if they if they happen in the gym. And probably the next most common thing that I see is maybe shoulder pain with lifting, and then probably after that, it's random popping and cracking in joints that that's uh-huh. pretty disconcerting for people. And so you look at the the kind of stuff that walks through my clinic, and those are going to be the the three main things that I see these days. You. Uh... You left out tendonitis, inflammatory joint conditions. What's the status with that? Yeah, I mean, you see, you see lots of people with chronic tendon pain, but I, I wouldn't necessarily say that those are those are caused by the gym. Those are those are like course of life, um, course of life ailments and they may they may get irritated at the gym but whenever they come Mm -hmm. into the gym or whenever they come into the clinic and you start talking to them about you know what was the onset how did this come on you start noticing that they they first felt it whenever they woke up in the morning and their shoulder hurt and it kind of progressively got worse over time and then they went and did this bench workout now now it's much worse so it it was something that was building over time it Mm -hmm. probably started with lifestyle or course of life Um, and so you don't necessarily see a whole lot of tendon pain that starts at the gym they usually they they know it ahead of time then they go to the gym it gets irritated and then they make that that correlation between the gym is obviously bad because it made my shoulder hurt right. even though it started right. hurting whenever they well I, one of the one of the most uh ubiquitous uh things and, and th- this applies to every population of humanoids on the surface of the earth is that we all hurt from time to time and we all have back pain. Everybody has back pain. Everybody, me and Will 
and Nick have back pain. The communist Chinese have back pain. Brazilians have back pain. The guys at the station in Antarctica <laughs> have back pain. The, the New Zealanders, if you can believe this, the New Zealanders have back pain too. Everybody has back pain. And it's just part of this bipedal stance, we assumed, well, about three million years ago. And it was a mistake, of course. But it's, it, it's been done. It's over with. And, and so here we are standing up, and our backs are now in compression, whereas previously they were under moment load. And they work pretty well as a design for moment load, but for, for an upright bipedal gait, a spinal column is not terribly well designed for the long run. And you're going to have back pain, and it's normal to have back pain. So one of the things that we have discovered, and I, I know that you have, have seen this too, is that back pain is um, chronic back pain. Now, I'm not talking about the kind that makes you piss yourself. You know, I'm talking about <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, chronic back pain. Back hurts all the time. Uh, 55-year-old guy comes into the gym and we set him up on a program. We get him squatting, pressing, pulling, you know, loading his back. Three weeks later, it's gone. That's yep. normal. I mean, I see that in the clinic all the time. Oh, yeah. But you know what's interesting about back pain is uh, I think the, the lifetime prevalence is somewhere like 88%. 88% of um, adults will have at least one episode of incapacitating back pain in their lifetime. That seems low. <laughs> I mean, but what, what it's the other twelve percent are lying, probably. The other twelve percent are lying. They just didn't get the questionnaire, right? But, um, even though, <laughs> yeah. even though it's like a universal human condition, like I, I have to say this, like we know virtually nothing about back pain. No, we 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 don't really know we what have, the we chiropractor have, is doing when he makes your back pop. Well, we've got some we've got some theories, we've got but some ideas, but we don't know what the hell. Everything else in. is correlation, but I mean, you take even something that's as scary sounding as degenerative disc disease or severe severe degenerative disc disease it's correlated with pain about the same as being having no radiologic having findings no, that's that's so interesting to me you can do an mri just a, a general baseline mri on any human being over the age of 35 and there will be some degenerative changes in the spine on the MRI study. Yeah, now, now all of them, and now radiologists even put that in their assessment. Like whenever they read the whenever they read the MRI, they right. say, you know, at the patient is forty years old. The prevalence of these findings in an asymptomatic population at forty years old is sixty percent or whatever. So radiologists words, are even disregard starting disregard this. Yeah, right. that it's that it has to be correlated with clinical symptoms or something that involves that requires a more in depth medical investigation. And right? even then. It may may not be the source of the situation. I remember a long time ago when I was in the horse business. This was an interesting, and I may have mentioned this on the podcast before, but there was a, was a study done of uh, navicular disease in horses, done at uh, uh, Georgia A and M, I believe the school was, and uh, Georgia Tech, whatever the vet school is at Georgia, did they X-rayed a thousand horses. A thousand horses, big high end number, one thousand, and uh, they selected this population so that half of the cohort had symptoms of navicular disease, lameness, and the other half were not lame. 
And at the end of a thousand x-rays, there was no correlation between x-ray positive navicular disease, <clears throat> x-ray negative navicular disease, and symptoms of lameness. Yeah. It, it, now, <laughs> now, that was an eye-opening yeah, exposure to physiology, and isn't it? Pain, you know? pain and disability is far more complex than just tissue damage. Yeah. It's far more complex than tissue damage. Um, it takes into, like, environment, like, upbringing, like, what, what's your experience with pain? If you had parents that were chronic pain patients, you know, you're more likely to develop chronic pain, not mm-hmm. because of a genetic component, but, but because that's that was, that was your experience with right. pain, like, seeing pain lead to disability and stuff like that and so there's there's multiple inputs that come into the right. pain experience it's your, not just your perception pain. of pain 100 yeah has a huge amount to do <clears throat> with the level of pain you experience one of one of my favorite now, for example what what fibromyalgia now isn't that an interesting Diagnosis. It's a, it's a terrible name. Yes, it's a terrible name for it. Fibromyalgia. It means your fibers hurt. Well, mine do too. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a, I don't claim it as a condition. <clears throat> it's just one of the things that's that happens every day. You know, like needing to pee. You know, <laughs> just what happens. You know, and you can either be debilitated by an over appreciation of your sensory input or you can learn to ignore it like i do my tinnitus i can hear my tinnitus right now if i think about it i can hear my tinnitus but i ignore it like most people with tinnitus do they ignore it because you have to you got to learn to ignore it and it's the same thing like if i was to sit here right now and think what hurts on me well, my back's hurting a little bit right now. I can feel my left shoulder. But the minute I stop thinking about it, it's irrelevant. It's just baseline, right? Yeah. So it depends on where your baseline is. Well, and also, it, it, I get people coming to my coming to my clinic all the time, and I, I know that the, this is ubiquitous to all medical providers. Somebody comes into yeah. comes comes into the clinic for something, and then they say, you know, what's your what's your level of pain? And the person says, "Well, it's seven out of 10. I'm like, "Well, that I mean, that sounds pretty pretty extreme for what for what your presentation is." And people always say, "Well, I've got a high pain tolerance," and which is which don't don't say that don't say that to a medical provider because people we talk about you whenever you say that. But um, and I don't have the I don't have the study with me because just two hours ago i was painting walls in my house yeah <laughs> right i'm not it wasn't right so we're this doing, was an we're, informal we're doing this we're anyway. doing this live this wasn't this right. wasn't scripted um but anyways what they did was they took individuals and they they put um they put a, a a monofilament with certain amount of pressure and so they were pushing into people's arms to see what the withdrawal pressure was going to be like do some people are some people able to tolerate more pain than others it was kind of the hypothesis of the study and what they found was Every single person withdrew at virtually the same amount of pressure, that the withdrawal reflex is the same. So people react to pain exactly the same. We withdraw from pain exactly the same, but they did a functional MRI while they were doing it. And people had a much greater emotional response to the same level of pain. And that's what that probably ties into. 
that Man, people with a so you see people that that will train through injuries and you know everybody's like oh that dude's really tough because you know look at what he's training through or whatever but really what it is is that person is not emotionally connected to their pain whereas you see other people and I, I know you've seen it probably oh. more more than I have people have something that that hurts and they become very emotional about that that particular condition and it's right. the emotion that actually limits them far more than the pain does you know that is that is so true i mean you've got people that in the past were referred to as hypochondriacs and what that term used to mean i don't even know if it's even used anymore it was just people who are chronically sick and whose identity is wrapped up in being sick in being a patient that's they want nothing more than to interact with the medical system because something is always wrong with them and they love it i forget they say they hate it but that's not really what what what's going on is it? I, for, I forget the term that they use it's like this sick sick patient phenotype or something like that that they yeah. use that they use now or yeah it's it's something like that <clears throat> yeah but right it's it's you know and and people that are not that way um <clears throat> people are not that way resent being unable to do the things that the pain is preventing them from doing and are more likely to go ahead and do those things anyway and not let the chronic or even the acute pain stop them from the activity they wish to pursue and uh but and what is uh and 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 as a result of that hey healing takes place but look at what the the society as as a whole right what's the response to What's the response to you go into a room of 10 people that you know, right? And I remember whenever you tore your tore your proximal bicep tendon. And right. we were at a seminar. You came in. You'd torn your proximal bicep tendon doing something at the house the, the night before. Yeah, I was up at the cabin. I was loading a big piece of wood into the onto the splitter and then you came in and i remember like you told me what happened i took a look at it and um you're like well i guess i probably should go train and like you walked into the gym and you you worked out right but tell that story to just 10 random people that you know and what's probably nine of them their response is going to be oh my god aren't you scared you're going to make it worse well just think of how much damage you could do if you do you know that's an interesting that's an interesting observation i have never had any trouble whatsoever with this proximal long head avulsion never had any trouble with it yeah i had the same thing after surgery and i've i've got uh supraspinatus and infraspinatus both avulsed on my shoulder blade here reach behind there and feel that i think you no, it's flat of the bone back there. Yeah, so supraspinatus come all the way. There. Yeah, supraspinatus is intact. So it, it's infraspinatus, which is gone, and and the and the teres minor. See there? Yep. Just bone. Yep. You know, I'm still pressing. You know, I I can't bench because of this shoulder, <clears throat> but I'm pressing twice a week. Uh, big injury happened two years ago uh, next month oh yeah that was right right after i got to korea i think the uh the quad tendon the quad tendon rupture complete quad tendon rupture and had uh had surgery on that i think got infected and dehissed so i've got 
uh, oh, probably 50% of that tendon. And the rest of the quad muscle is, you know, attached somewhere proximal to the distal end of the femur. So it's up in here someplace. And there's a hole in that extensor. But uh, Monday night, I squatted 255 for a triple to a box that's about two and a half inches above parallel with a pause. Because I'm not going to not squat. Every one of those reps goes through my mind. Is this where I ruptured this fucking thing? <clears throat> and Totally natural. It's perfectly – I'd be stupid if I didn't go through that process, you know. But what are you going to do? You know, accept – being handicapped i mean you know i'm just not gonna do it so what i'm I, what i might suggest is like what's the worst thing that could happen the worst it, thing it, worst thing that could happen is that you it, you it right? again. i mean the same thing could happen stepping outside with it being wet right now you and, step in a hole and or, that's what's gonna eventually or, take place i know that at some point i'm gonna re-rupture this thing or thing. even worse what happens if 15 years goes by and you've done nothing because you're scared of that that tearing precisely what's the condition of the entire person going right. to be from 10 15 years of trying to protect a joint that we have we have a good solution for in case something happens yeah but the fear of injury is probably something that in the clinic i have to deal with and i have to i have to finesse my way through getting people to <clears throat> reduce their fear of injury because a lot of people's fear of injury is way overblown as far as well, how much it, it how much it affects their their choices day to day that people will right. take the long slow slide into slime over potentially hurting their shoulder lifting weights like they'll take the type 2 diabetes they'll take the metabolic syndrome they'll take all the all the carry on effects of a lifetime of not doing anything physically demanding because they don't want to hurt their shoulder that they right. hurt in high school football or something like that. Right. And so that's something clinically that you have to be able to navigate pretty well. Is See, in, in a situation like that, the fear turns into <clears throat> a far, far worse situation than any potential injury that you are afraid of suffering. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've, I've never you seen – I don't think I've ever seen an injury that occurred in physical activity that wasn't something that was rehabable. I mean, there's I, a there's a way to do it i just have to you know and this is one of the things that that has taught me a whole bunch of stuff over the past couple of years about squatting you can squat without your quads you know pretty much i worked with i worked you with know? somebody at starting strength chicago remotely that tore his tore his quad tendon and then he re he retore it again but he had about 10 percent of the quad tendon that was still attached yeah Nobody even knew that he had re-ruptured it, and it's about it's about fifteen twenty percent of quad tendon repairs um, spontaneously re-rupture. That's what I've heard. Yeah, it's about it's about one in five. Yeah, one in five. It's do not that. good odds. And he was he was squatting like two fifty five with ten percent of his extensor mechanism, and he was he was doing just fine. And it was he yeah. went he went to his orthopedic surgeon. Orthopedic surgeon like palpated, saw that he was missing most of the extensor mechanism. Mm -hmm. Went in, did a did a revision of the repair that he had and then he had something much like you it got infected he had this long hospital course and he's he's back to squatting now he's back to squatting now he's bitten he set a pr and bench not too long ago with like 250 yeah 
Well, I, you know, guy called about the revision on this thing. I talked to him about uh, what I was doing right now, what I was actually capable of doing. And he said, this is, this is not something I would do, but I know a guy across town that would, that does these kinds of revisions uh, every week. And if you want it done, I would refer you to him. And so my next question was, if this was your knee, what would you do? And he said, I would leave it alone. Yeah. I mean, there's there's too many things can go wrong, you know, and you're going to be out six months where you're not going to be able to do it. A goddamn thing. And and you're getting around okay. You're training. It hadn't been the end of the world. If it was my knee, I'd leave it alone. And I said, I'm, I'm glad I agree with it. I agree with you on that, and I appreciate that's always, your advice. It's always a hard question to answer for a patient, especially whenever yeah. you know that that's why maybe, I asked. The, maybe their uh, their <laughs> mindset when it comes to their injury is a lot different than yours, right? Yeah. Um, and so when people ask me that, I'm like, hey, you have to understand, like, I, I probably would answer this a lot different than a lot of other people. Right. You know, so it's, you know, there's you can't hurt yourself in a way that I haven't been hurt, okay? I've had over the over the course of the past 50 years i probably had 15 operations that required general anesthesia you know i've, I've it had i just have been i've had that good luck <laughs> i've not had a lot of good luck i've been hurt pretty bad several times and uh you know motorcycle wrecks horse wrecks you know falling off of roofs all god almighty all kinds of shit so it's uh injuries are are, have been a big part of of my life over the past 50 years and i've but i decided a long time ago that the only way to deal with these things is to train through them the only way to do it is to train through them i remember one time in the gym i hurt my this i it, it, let me preface this by saying i have very seldom hurt myself in the gym that's not where i get hurt <laughs> yeah i get hurt <clears throat> in the yard you know or you know someplace other than in the gym because the gym's a controlled environment and all the stupid shit i do is not ever controlled but, like that but let me but it, let me just say you don't get hurt in the gym because you know what you're doing when it comes yes. to programming right because whenever you take away the knowledge of programming and you just go into the gym just to see what you could do yeah and, yeah, and you just start guessing at stuff like that then maybe maybe the the risk of injury is quite a bit higher right. there that's but, not that's not training yeah no that's not training I had a trainer that used to work for me a long time ago uh took one of my clients while i was out of town on a on a two-week trip and hurt the guy's back real bad because he didn't look at the notebook didn't, didn't didn't he didn't have a training mindset he's just a personal trainer so yeah load you know correct approach to loading i've been very very careful over the past two years when i'm trying to get back maintain some muscle mass get back to some of my strength but uh most of the time when I most of the times when I hurt myself, it's not in the gym. Now I've injured myself in the gym a couple of times. But typically it's 
in situations where I am not in control of all of the variables. And I am in control of all of the variables in the gym, and so are you. If you'll just pay close attention to this, you'll find that, um, you know, the gym's a very safe place. Even when you're doing PRs, the gym's a very safe place if you're paying attention. If you have your head out of your ass, the gym is the place to rehab injuries, not to incur them. And, uh, you know, you, uh, people are afraid of the gym for some reason. Oh, you're going to hurt yourself. In the gym, and you don't typically hurt yourself in the gym. If you if you learned how to do this correctly, that's not where we get hurt. We get hurt on the battlefield. Somebody shoots us. You know, that doesn't happen in the gym. Yeah, it's funny. Nobody shoots you in the gym. You know, you even take somebody like my wife, Micah. You know, she posts a video of her deadlifting. I think it was like 210, 215 or something like that. And she posted on whatever Facebook or whatever she uses. And all and these screeching females. Are going. That they all jump in there. But, like, the vast majority of them, the vast majority of them are chronic pain patients that have never done anything physically demanding. But they have chronic crippling back pain, right? And mm. they comment on there, like, you're going to hurt your back doing that. It's like. No, this is exactly no, why her no, back doesn't hurt. No, you just saw me do it. <laughs> yeah, it's because I posted the video, and I'm not hurt. All right? When am I going to hurt my back? And you, on the other hand. I don't know, it's, it's hard to explain. And, you know, they've been, to, they've been to six different spine surgeons. Six <clears throat> different spine surgeons said that there's nothing that they could do for them or anything like that. But yet they'll – and that's kind of – take the, no for an answer. The societal – The hypo, or the societal thing that I was talking about, that it's so it's so per, pervasive in our culture because of the ready access to right. medical care. They want that, to be involved in the medical industry. And it's – that is something that has been taught to – I was – Oh, my God. Every time I go home at night, I've got the radio on, and they are actually advertising a disease now. Exocrine pancreatic insufficiency is now – that's the new thing we're going to advertise that, hey, you may have this. Ask your doctor if this new medication that replaces pancreatic juice is right for you. You know, I (laughs) – (laughs) <laughs> they're advertising a disease it's just you know and you can't get away from it how many times and i don't watch television and one of the main reasons i don't watch television is because i don't want to watch uh you know hours and hours of pharmaceutical company advertisements you know i mean they're all the same they're all the same if it's covid Right. Uh, Pfizer. Those people, if there, I wish there was a hell so that those people could fry on the floor of the goddamn place. Sizzle and pop on the floor of hell like a piece of chicken fried steak for all eternity. Pfizer, please. God almighty. Yeah, it's, it's just, it's just absolutely amazing. But, uh, it's we have been taught that there must be something wrong with us or we're not cool you know and, yeah and ask your doctor if this diagnosis is right this, for this, you this diagnosis so that if we this, can give you. If, ask your doctor if this commercial is right for you 
that's that's one of the things that oh, I, I mean i was i've never been somebody who went to the went to the doctor for for minor complaints no. right like it has to be no. pretty serious for me to go um but one of the th- one of the unint- that's when you go to the doctor yeah. oh my god arterial bleeding but uh, you know, one of the unintended consequences of me being educated in the profession and working in the profession more more so than the education is I have a I have a healthy dose of distrust for the medical community because um, all thinking people do. Yeah, and it's it's not to say anything negative about the individual practitioners, but I I think that there's we don't know as much as we try to we try to convince people that we do and then if you look well, at like how often somebody goes to a medical provider and they actually get something of worth out of that visit or out of that copay outside of an acute infection that obviously requires like antibiotics or something like right. that but in the scope of what we're talking about let's take let's take back pain right you right. go you go to your your doctor because you have an acute um, onset of back pain um, and what are they going to tell you and they're going to give you some some meds that you can buy over the counter. You can go mm-hmm. buy Tylenol and ibuprofen over the counter, um, and they're going to tell you to come back in six weeks. But why do they tell you to come back in six weeks? Because they know it'll be better than six yeah, weeks. Yeah, because because it will have healed. That's the natural. That's the natural history the of back natural pain. Natural history of back pain is that you got rapid onset, you feel like shit for four or five days, and then ten days later everything's back to normal. Because as that's, a patient, that's just the way it is. As a patient, what you don't realize is you're there to see them and to get their counsel on this. Particular particular condition but they've got 45 other people racked and stacked the rest of the day like they're trying to get you in and get you out so that they can see the next person and the next person and so they're basically just being a coffee filter the things that are going to be kind of uh, it's going to be natural progression of the of the illness or self self-limiting conditions they'll just tell you to come back in in six weeks it gives there's them a, a couple of guys here in wichita falls gps who run a, a buddy of mine knew these guys knew of their office practices and uh, he told me a long time ago he told me that there is a 45 second clock running on the door when the patient comes in and you're there patients in there waiting on you you walk in the door nurse outside has got a 45 second clock and in 45 seconds, she comes in the door. And and it's, you and, know, and the consult is over with. And I, and I, did, I didn't believe him. Because I thought until, this until is... You, until you timed did, it yourself. And, until I had a member come into the gym five or six years ago. And this is kid is in his mid-20s. Big, healthy-looking kid. He's, big, he's weird, you know. And I, so I trained him several times, and I started asking him about his, his medication uh, situation because he's obviously on an antidepressive. Yeah, you can tell. You know, that's that look in their eyes when they look at you, and it's kind of, <laughs> everything's kind of yeah. sad, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, I asked him about this, and these guys had him on. Uh, Prozac. One of these two brothers had him on Prozac. And I said, how did he determine that you needed to be on Prozac? 
and he said well i went to i went to him and he asked me some questions and he said now you need this ssri and he sent me home with a prozac prescription and i said how long did you spend in the room talking to him and he said well i don't know uh and i said was it uh like a minute was it a half hour was it 45 minutes oh no it wasn't a half hour. I, was done. I said so was it 10 minutes and he got to thinking about it and he said no it wasn't 10 minutes and i finally nailed him down on it he said it really i guess it's about a minute he asked me five or six questions and on the basis of five or six questions he sent this kid home with a permanent prescription for a mind-altering life-changing drug well but who did the who did the the subjective exam and got all the history of was whatever it? it was it was a nurse a it nurse did all that it wasn't done well no no it what i'm saying is no. like you have a you have a provider come in a, a medical doctor right. or whatever they come in they're taking some other individuals history because somebody asks the questions and takes right. your vital signs and stuff like that i don't they, know that that was done and then Will. they come in and just like no, i know how it's supposed it to be real, done but I, no no i'm saying that it shouldn't be done that way that if a if a provider is making decisions like mm-hmm. that the provider should be the one taking the history because right. there's, a, there's he's the one writing the prescription and i'm the one right. who's asking you the questions and if i ask something and you give me an answer back that doesn't seem like you're answering the question then i need to re- reformat right. the sure. question or make sure that there's a mutual understanding of sure. what i'm talking about but whenever and i and i see it all the time whenever i take somebody's case like so another physical therapist sends their patient over to me like i've got to go back over what they asked them because right. the the information yeah. that you get right. from a patient is best taken by the person who's making the sure. decisions but in the sausage grinder in a in a primary care practice right. you you can't take a to make it economically viable you can't take a physician and have him take 15 minutes to go through a comprehensive screening question like question and answer session with mm-hmm. the patient because they're they'll never be able to make that that practice economically viable so you have to have a lower paid individual that asks the questions the provider comes in r- real quick reviews what's going on asks a couple of questions gives the prescription and moves on because there's a dozen other people that are waiting for right. that room and so it's more out of economic viability to keep the practice going because reimbursement yeah. rates are so they, they suck right and so that's like but but what you're getting at is that they're not doing an actual medical evaluation no. they're coming in and they're there it's basically algorithmic right mm-hmm. person says yes 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 and yes okay then those are he needs to get an ssri let me write it and then let me move on to the next person right yeah and and you know if you're seeing 65 70 patients a day for that's, me that's what you got to do for me 12 to 14 patients a day i spend about 45 minutes with a new evaluation and that's mm-hmm. that's a long day and it's not yeah. even i could see somebody in in 45 minutes comprehensive exam history and stuff like that but you know the thing that gets it is that i have to document absolutely everything that is talked about everything that's said and it's the documentation that takes a long long time to do that so like while you're sitting there talking to me and i know patients don't like it but i have to sit there and type the whole time you're talking i have to sit there and type to yeah. make sure that i i at you, least you get all the data summarize everything that the person right. is saying and so a physical therapy note get this a physical therapy note in our system is like five pages long oh, God. 
whatever That's the note right yeah but you know wh- how much of that is actually useful information to the diagnosis and management of the treatment virtually none maybe a little bit of the history maybe right. a little bit of the the exam and maybe the things that i did to rule out well, what's the so, rest of it for joint commission standards and peer review standards because uh, an organization says you have to ask about this you have to ask about this you have to ask about this you have to get a comprehensive pain assessment you have to Mm -hmm. do all these things but i remember one of my uh, physical therapy professors um brilliant dude he was the he was the chief of the clinic whenever um, i was going through my internship his physical therapy notes were that long Mm. and people got better like dude did a great physical exam he got a great got a great uh, subjective and objective exam out of him but he did that much documentation and his patients still got better he wasn't mm-hmm. asking them about their alcohol use or tobacco use and stuff like that because mm-hmm. it, it, what his thought was that's that's general that's, that's general medicine that's not going to change that's not going to change and me as a physical right. therapist i'm here about their back pain not about that right um but you have hospital organizations falling under the joint commission standards that say well you have to you have to do all of these things in an outpatient exam and so you have to make sure that you have their preferred pronouns documented their tobacco use their comprehensive pain assessment you have to you have to have a, a depression screening questions you got to 90 percent of the the exam is all filler just to make sure that you're meeting joint commission standards so right. then so then we get back to like what good actually comes out of going to the doctor for minor minor injuries right. not 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 much not because much. they're, they're going to give you a not 15 much. second assessment that is going to be really just algorithmic it's going to be what they think they remember from residency 25 years ago and that's going to be about it i mean i still have primary care doctors that work in the same same place as me still tell people that rice is the way that you treat musculoskeletal injuries and that hadn't been true i mean that's been 15 20 years since people actually really really use that compression elevation and it's you know those of us that have been injured have determined a long time ago that ice doesn't do anything. Yeah, and the the research it like, do a the research has has told us that. In like the last fifteen years, we know that ice is for the most part basically useless unless it's uh, like temporary analgesia. It makes right. things that hurt feel a little bit. If you got temporary. a muscle belly tear, it's ice is probably a good idea if you get it on the immediately, tear right immediately. now. But. And probably, delay, and, pro- it's, it's, and probably to a level that most people wouldn't tolerate it anyways right. because you have to cool the area enough right. to, to, to limit the, the right. amount of bleeding because it's the bleeding that's going to cause a lot of the, the post the, the post the um, damage injury right. um, uh, pain and dysfunction, right? right. But most people aren't, aren't going to do that. So for the most part, most people, ice is pretty much useless. So right. what we use in all of the clinics that I've, I've worked in since about 2016 is we we just use um uh protection compression because for like muscle strains and tendonitis Mm -hmm. compression makes you able to train a little bit better right Right, so you can train it a little bit higher changes the geometry so we so we say protection compression and early loading of tissue Mm -hmm. and every single clinic that i've i've run since 2016 that's what we've operated on we don't no rest no ice it's in no elevation it's just protection compression and elevation or um early loading of tissue early loading of tissue boys and girls now listen to that listen to that this is the is the profession finally coming around in, in to some, understanding that you have to actually work the injury? There's 
there are people that are doing it, but it, it, it your your standard outpatient orthopedic physical therapy clinic, these are individuals that are seeing 20, 30, 40 patients a day. Mm-hmm. They're wrecked by the time they go home. So the amount of professional reading that they're doing is probably right. pretty minimal. Yeah. Yeah. They're just trying to keep their head above water, right? right? So they kind of get into, this is what I do for this. And I've, I've had some success in the past because of, well, natural progression of injuries, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so they, they find things that that yes. have worked in the past, and then that just becomes the thing that they do, right? It's been my experience that if you go to an outpatient physical therapist uh, and you uh, obtain any benefit that you perceive from having gone to that outpatient physical therapist, what has actually happened is you've just healed up. Uh, for the you for the most part, up. for the most part, yeah. I would I would t- totally agree with you. Yeah, I'd say in the majority, that's that's majority that's of cases. The case. You just healed up. You would have healed up had you not gone to the guy and spent all that money. The uh, but something we don't something we don't talk about is what should you get out of an outpatient orthopedic physical therapist? I mean, we we all talk about them and how the like if you go in you go in and see one here in town, and then I go in with a similar complaint. Guess what our rehab. Um, protocols are going to look like be, they're going to be absolutely identical the same. if if Micah, they only know one way to if do micah goes in and she has the same condition she's going to get exactly the same thing mm-hmm. so a 43 year old mother of three uh, a 40 41 year old active duty military officer and then you you know you we all go in we all get exactly the same thing right, right? so it's not personalized but what should somebody get out of a good a good outpatient orthopedic physical therapist what should they get out of it i would say that the first thing that they should do is they should get a, a good competent physical exam because right. we we talked about PCM physical exam where the guy touches you and has you move and examines your abilities while you are moving for him and we have and, we have research that shows that if you take if you take PAs nurse practitioners primary care physicians orthopedic surgeons physical therapists and you look at their diagnostic accuracy on a physical exam matched by MRI physical therapists are just a just a shade under orthopedic surgeons right. primary care doctors or uh, PAs and nurse practitioners, less than 50% diagnostic accuracy. Physical therapists are about 80%. Mm-hmm. And then orthopedic surgeons are going to be, because they see all ranges, well, they see right? What they, they see what they diagnosed, and then they go in and actually look at the structure yep. and, <clears throat> and get to see whether or not but they we're, were correct. But a good outpatient physical therapist is actually pretty close in sure. diagnostic accuracy. And he should so, be. And, they, and you should, because you should get that. following up on his diagnosis when the guy comes back in for therapy. Right. And you should you should get that. So because a primary care doctor doesn't have 45 minutes to talk to you about the history progression and mm-hmm. stuff like that, you should get history progression given to someone who can analyze that information and then do a complete physical examination or at least enough to give you a good solid diagnosis or assessment doesn't necessarily have to be a a diagnosis because a lot of times you're we're talking about a pain syndrome or we're just talking about a collection or constellation of symptoms not necessarily a diagnosis like shoulder impingement syndrome is a good one right like is tissue really being impinged 
We don't know. So that's why a lot of providers are now calling it anterolateral shoulder pain syndrome because the actual mechanical compression of tissue, we don't we don't see it as much as that that may not be it, but shoulder impingement syndrome is really just a a term that we use for that that same constellation of symptoms. Mm -hmm. Then you should get an exercise program that is going to allow you to load the tissue based off of what your previous abilities are in your training history because the physical therapists are going to sit there and and try to market themselves as being the movement experts then the first part of being a movement expert is i should be able to look at you and say your training history is entirely different than my wife your training history is totally different so whenever you come in with shoulder pain anterior shoulder pain your treatment program is going to look radically different than hers right but then really you're just trying to load the tissue in a manner that is progressive that allows that allows the tissue to return to the same (laughs) quality that it was prior to the onset of pain and you're just trying to normalize things but no but that's not what you're getting well here's here's an interesting point this is i alluded to this earlier there is a I have noticed over the years of having dealt with members of my gym that have gone to the physical therapist that have come back, and me quiz them about the the money they wasted and the time they wasted at the physical therapist's office. And so what did they do? Well, there's about five protocols protocols they do every day. You, you know, you ice, you hot wax, you, you know, flexibility stuff. They rub on your hand. They pet you on the head they do three or four other things and then they send you home and and my next question is is how did that change over the four weeks that you went to the went to the outpatient physical it's a, therapist it's the same office. thing three times a week it's for the four same weeks. thing three times a week for four weeks so here's the situation when we train people we base our training on the stress recovery adaptation model <clears throat> and it has been uh my observation that physical therapists are not taught the stress recovery adaptation model what they're taught is that if if they're taught anything at all they're taught that here's the origin here's the insertion of this muscle belly and this is what this muscle belly does and that's why we do this except I don't have rotator cuffs on that side. That's external rotator stuff. So we got to do this with bands. If your rotator cuff is injured, this is what we do with bands. Because we're going to strengthen it, right? Because we're going to strengthen it, even though that's not what it really does. That's that's what it does in the physical therapist's office, but that's not what it actually does. So, but the overall observation I have had is that physical therapy regards the original injury – as the stress and they regard everything they're doing in the office as facilitating recovery and adaptation when the truth of the matter is that if the physical therapist is not applying a stress to the injured system that the injured system must recover from the stress of the therapy and adapt. And I think that's 
the whole problem here because that paradigm is not taught in school i've asked mm-hmm. about it a whole bunch and if if you're not stress recovery adaptation is a short-term process that takes place over several days right if the original stress was the car wreck that happened two months ago you know recovery's already taking place and and your job as the therapist is to is to find the weakness in the injured system apply a stress to that weakness and have a progressively increase in an incremental fashion just like training every time you go in so that recovery takes place in a progressive manner and adaptation takes place in a progressive manner and this is the this is the whole in outpatient physical therapy yeah i think i was i think i was probably in my first year um postgraduate and you know we had in the clinic that i i worked at we had protocols for these things basically it's like a an exercise flow sheet for the physical therapy assistants and that those were already pre-populated and so if somebody came in with patellofemoral pain syndrome then here's here's the flow sheet that you attach to your notes so that they they can treat them and it was a whole bunch of theraband like hip abduction strengthening and stuff like that and i remember in doing mini squats and like there's stuff like that and i started out and i was kind of like doing what we're supposed to do because at that point you're just trying to keep your head above water and as i was doing this i was like wait a second like why why are we doing hip abduction and why are we doing mini squats why can't we just combine all of these exercises into one exercise that i could progressively load and so i just started doing that so my patients started squatting they started deadlifting Mm -hmm. and i remember people looked at on in horror that i had people doing these types of things because no you're supposed to do hip abduction strengthening and whenever i asked the question okay so this person is 25 years old they've never had knee pain before until they started running three three days a week to get ready to run a 5k now they've got some knee pain tell me in that chain of events when their hip abductors got got weak got weak right and nobody nobody could ever answer that for me and even worse whenever people would say well it's their their knee hurts because their hip flexors are tight when did their hip flexors become tight because there was no change right. to the tissue other than it was the loading scheme that they were doing their hip flexors and so and then what i found in our, in our our population is that it wasn't necessarily we always diagnose things with as overuse injuries but it wasn't very long into my clinical practice that i'm like this guy that comes in that's 60 pounds overweight like it's it, He's not overdoing it, right? He's not. He, he hasn't been training too hard for he's, too long and doing he's too not much. Overtraining. No, like so. And what I found was that a lot of times it was because we have biannual physical fitness test requirements, right? That you take a physical fitness test in April mm-hmm. and you take one in six months later in October. That people would do nothing for five and a half months. And then they would try to like cram all of their training into past their PT and, test and, and inflame something. And so what I what I did was I I just kind of coined the term detraining injuries, right. or disuse injuries. Disuse injuries. And, right. And right. everybody right. around me actually like listened to that. I'd given in service on it, and they're like, "Oh my god, that actually sounds." That actually that's, that's sounds actually logical. That sounds logical. And then I'd I'd argue with not argue with people, but I'd ask the question like, "Explain to me." how a tight hip flexor one 
Tell me how you're going to test it. Number two, tell me the genesis of how that became a problem and how it wasn't a problem for the past 26 years, but now it is. Now it is. And what I and, s- and number three, how is that tight hip flexor causing pain a meter? Well, not a meter, but a, you know, a 18 inches distal to that injury. But this is you this know. this is what I came the, the realization that I came to is that if you go to if you go to a spine surgeon and you have back pain, what do they have to offer you for your pain? Well, they have spine surgery. They have spine surgery. You go to an orthopedic surgeon, what do they have to offer you? They've got orthopedic surgery. surgery. Yeah, they got orthopedic. <laughs> they've got orthopedic surgery. You go to a right. physical therapist and you have knee pain, what do they have to offer you? Well, they were taught stretches for the hip, so that's what they have to offer you. Right. And and whenever I got to that point where I was like, wait, the reason why they're doing this is just because this is what they were taught to treat right. with, that they weren't taught how Their to... Their approach is partitioned artificially. Absolutely, and, it's the, and yeah. it's the education process that does that. So then I started getting... By that time, I started having therapists work underneath me, and so I started making my clinic look more like what I would want what I would want treatment if I went to a physical therapy clinic. So whenever I was out in California, we had three squat racks, we had a deadlift platform, we had we had competition bench, we had monolift attachments, and we we set it up almost like it was a sports training facility, and right. everybody loved it. Then I went to then I went to Washington, and we started doing a lot of our rehab stuff in the gym. That I would take people because I was working by myself instead of having people go to the physical therapy clinic and do stuff, I would section time out at the gym where people would come in for rehab and I would just coach them in the gym. And guess what? People got better. And then whenever I went to, whenever I went to Korea, the two years that I was there, by the time I left, we had multiple squat racks. We had multiple benches. We had deadlifting platform. We had all that. And all of the therapists who worked with me saw the benefit of just progressive loading of tissue Mm -hmm. and so even though that i've left this is still exactly what they do i had civilian therapists that one in particular that her entire her entire uh clinical history prior to coming to korea was that she worked in skilled nursing facilities and then she took a job in korea as a civilian in our system um as a um, as an orthopedic physical therapist and she was brand new to orthopedic physical therapy, but whenever I got there, she really latched on to what I was doing because she saw the benefit to it and she started implementing it herself. And like now this uh, Dr. Ackland, like she is a wonderful physical therapist for orthopedic physical therapy because she's taken exactly what we're talking about, progressive exposure to stress. And instead of doing isolated yes. muscles to then try to get them to work as a, as a universal system, she takes the she takes the complex movement to train she all of the components. trains them as a universal system. Yeah, and then she uses Certainly. she uses that Certainly. to get the adaptation that she wants in in everything else. Well, it uh, so in other words, what you have done is incorporated the the stress recovery adaptation. Yes, and that is that phenomena is phenomena into physical therapy, and that is part right. of that is part of the patient education. Right. Why are we right. Why are we doing deadlifts? Well, this is why we're doing deadlifts. We're going to do it because of this, and we mm-hmm. explain to them stress recovery adaptation. Right. I don't know how many times a day I pull up 
Google Images and pull up the graph, stress recovery adaptation, mm-hmm. or the, the the three pictures of the different types of squats and tell people about a moment at the hip, moment at the knees and stuff like that. And it, you know, there was a, a questionnaire study that went out a long time ago and it asked people their main motivation for go, for seeking care at a medical facility or medical medical uh, provider. And guess what the number one number one reason why people sought medical care for? And I'll, I'll save you the suspense. It's not for treatment. That people didn't actually go to the doctor primarily for treatment. Guess what they went for? They went for information. They went for really? they want to understand their condition. And so really, I would not have guessed that. So use that. I use that study. Hey, if that's what people want, then I'm going to teach them how to do this. And I'm going to explain why I'm doing it in a way that is easily digestible for them so that they can see it and practice. And I would I don't give myself a lot of credit about a lot of things, but I would put my my outcomes with orthopedic physical therapy patients up against any physical therapist in the world. Like my outcomes are they're pretty damn good, mm-hmm. but but I don't do anything. Yeah, I, no, I, I I have no doubt that that's true. And one of the things uh, with physical therapy too is that you'll see, especially um, physical therapists that kind of fancy themselves as like social media personalities or should I use the term influencer? influencer. That, that is the, that is the worst word in the English language. I, I wish think. that yeah, that's that's uh, it's a sickening term. I just but if there's somebody, if there's a I saw that yesterday and I got mad. Somebody mentioned somebody influencing yesterday i really i got physically angry about (laughs) but if there was one one thing that sums up um mainstream physical therapy it's complicate to validate yeah yeah that's certainly true uh we have made the observation uh many many times that complexity appeals to stupid people yeah let me let me throw out a whole bunch of a whole bunch of jargon that you're not going to understand but it's going to make you think that i know what i'm talking about but then if i can if i can baffle you with bullshit of all these complex jargon terms that you don't understand then you're gonna you're gonna defer to me as being the authority because you don't know what i'm saying therapy babble so therefore i must know what i'm talking about that's actually the term for that yeah no and it's therapy babble and there's you know there have been several people that i've been associated with in the past who were masters at therapy babble you could talk for five minutes and say absolutely nothing yep but we're talking fast the for five minutes we're not going to say the name but you know who i'm talking about oh yeah no and i i get people who come into come into the uh clinic asking me my 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 um opinion on some of these individuals and i'm like (laughs) Dude, six foot four and weighs two forty, and he deadlifts four hundred five, and he barely gets it off the ground. Like, so I, right. I would maybe not take what he says. Yeah, whenever it know, comes to strength conditioning, when it comes to strength conditioning, maybe he's maybe his methods applied to himself don't work. You know, <laughs> and whenever he had his knees replaced, it's like well, that wasn't very supple of no, you. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's not the direction they should work. So uh, anyway, no, but, the uh, the. Injuries are injuries are something that all of you people are going to have to deal with. Um, whether you train or not. Whether you train or not, whether you sit on your ass for the rest of your life, you are going to experience pain from an injury at some point in your life. Now, our suggestion to you is that you will be less likely to get hurt if you're in good shape, if you're strong. 
And if you do get hurt, you're going to be more likely to be minimally affected by that injury. And you're going to be more likely to be back to as close to 100% as you can get in a much shorter period of time if you go into that injury with a history of, of physical strength. And uh, there are people not listening to this podcast, but there are people that everybody listening to this podcast knows very well that don't ever do anything that involves any physical risk to them because they might get hurt. Well, that's an existential question that's outside of our purview. Uh, if you've, you know, limited your life to things that that you perceive cannot physically harm you, you've taken a different approach to things than than I have, and that really most useful people have. And I think that might play and, into and we can't we can't affect that. like what I was talking about. People who have like an emotional response to yes. pain or they're emotionally connected to it. Right. I think maybe that I, and I've seen people that once they've gone through say some semblance of a linear progression or they've at least gotten to the point where now they're training hard that maybe their emotional response to pain is blunted a little bit because they've had discomfort from the gym of things that they've done to themselves and they've started to see that pain isn't necessarily a bad thing all the time no right i I think that that one of the, the one of the primary benefits of going through the novice linear progression is that you learn that what you had previously perceived as pain or discomfort is is in fact um, evidence that you're alive and that that's good right the pain will stop for good when you're dead right and if you can get under the bar and do the fifth rep of a set of five at 405 what the the physical sensation that you experience would be termed as pain or discomfort to someone who had not Mm. worked up to 405 right and the process of having gotten strong and having done it through hard physical effort teaches you about physical sensations and it gives you a different perspective on uh, what pain is, what and, it's for, what good is it, what bad is it. And one thing that really works, and it works clinically and it works in the gym too, but really well in the clinic, is whenever somebody comes in and they say, uh, you know, so I have somebody come in three times a week or whatever because they're doing a, a novice linear progression. So mm-hmm. they come in, they squat on Monday. They come in on Wednesday and the first thing they say is, uh, you know, my legs are still really sore. You know, I probably should take it easy today. I'm like, no, 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 you don't get to do that. You, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to add 10 pounds. You're going to do it again. But they see that like they, they, a lot of people will add these like kind of roadblocks or obstacles or like exit ramps that say, well, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not going to do it today because I'm like, still hurt from Monday. Yeah. And then you, you force them to do it anyways. Right. And then whenever they see that, oh, crap, like I actually still squatted more than I did How yesterday. Even though I, I was I went I was up sore. 10 pounds. And I went up 10 pounds. Even though I hurt, I went up 10 pounds. So I guess maybe hurting is not that valuable a data input. 
And then, of course, you, you right. I mean, you, you, you play up the the positivity of it. That hey, look, right. you, look, you walked in here today and you said that you didn't think you should train, but we added ten pounds to your squat. You did three sets of five, exactly what you did on Monday, and everything went great. Your technique looked great, so let's come back on Friday and do the same thing. Do the same thing. And then yeah. they come back the next time, and now they've added twenty pounds. They see the weight starting to accumulate on the bar, and by that time, you've already got them. Right. You already got them, and then they're starting to see that the the uncomfortable sensation that they had is not as limiting as their their own analysis of what it might do. And the more intelligent among them will realize that the uncomfortable sensation they were experiencing is part of the process that caused the weight on the bar to go up 20 pounds. It's part of it. And whenever you, they you seek it out, you don't avoid it. And whenever they finish that third set of five, um, whenever their legs were sore and they do it, they feel better. Yeah, they feel better. They're like, oh, I actually feel better than I did whenever I came in. And yeah. like that is that's you, what we're you warmed we're looking up. For. You warmed up, and you know, you do this right, you're not going to be sore anyway. You're going, you know, people are not sore, but the first week when they do a linear progression, but. They, they're always a little bit of soreness someplace. There's always a little bit of pain somewhere. And people learn over time to associate that physical discomfort with the progress mm-hmm. because it's yep. inherent in the, in the process. And, uh, you know, it's uh, – this is, you know, the, the – the, uh, We are narrow casting. Let me say this for about the 90th time. (laughs) We are narrow casting. What we do is different than what everybody else does in the gym. We are not dealing with muscle bellies. We're not dealing with body parts. We're not dealing with your bias and your tries. We're not dealing with your quads and your hammies and your glutes and your calves. We're not dealing with those things. We are dealing with movement patterns. And there are only a few basic movement patterns that human bodies can make. They're squatting down, standing up, just picking something up off the ground, just pushing something up over your head, pushing something away from you, picking something up off the floor, throwing it up and catching it, and pulling something toward you. And those are the basic six movement patterns and each one of those is addressed by a separate exercise analyzed correctly for the the movement pattern that it is loading and it's analyzed for the involving the most muscle mass over the longest effective range of motion and that in a nutshell is starting strength but that doesn't appeal to everybody no not everybody is capable of understanding that that simple logical approach is <clears throat> is the best way to effect massive changes in your physical capacity over the shortest period of time because muscle bellies must be worked we got to do quads and i mean i give it, i give patients for the most part unless i've got a good reading on the the patient whenever i'm seeing them and i kind of make the decision for them because I, I already know that they're they're coming along with what i'm what i'm giving them right <laughs> but whenever i don't know whenever i get to the end of an evaluation i'll usually tell somebody all right look i've got two two options for you we can either treat this like this and i go through 
I go through exactly what you just said, or I say, or you know what, I can do traditional physical therapy. I know how to do that just fine too. So you could get exactly the same thing that a 66 year old person walking through the clinic is going to get, or and you're, you get the, exactly the same thing. But if that's what your that's what your patient values are that you want to be treated like that, then we can do that as well. And probably ninety percent of the time they go with the, they go with the first option. Right, but because still, they don't want to look like a, a fucking pussy. But then there's still the therapist. Then there's still there's probably a good ten percent or so that right. they they want the they want the, yeah, the traditional thing. And the, you know the, you know the number one reason why they they tell me that they don't want this one. <laughs> fucking grinds my gears every time i hear it uh-huh. <laughs> they say well i'm not a weightlifter and i don't want to get too big i'm like I'm like do you do That's you understand <laughs> do you understand like i've been training for a long time if it were if it were easy to have big muscles i guarantee yeah, you i'd, be I'd already right. have them i'm i'm 182 yeah, pounds you, you, like. you think you think you're gonna end up just accidentally one day looking like arnold schwarzenegger like, right i knew this was gonna happen <laughs> look at this Big old ugly 32-inch pie. God almighty, I didn't want this. And it's his fault. Yes. Right. I like him. Yeah. Yeah, we're narrow casting. There's no doubt about it. I have to, but, I have to like, like just push that down whenever somebody says that in the clinic and just yeah, just I, not not respond to it but yeah i just i just don't want to get too big you I know like I, every I, time i've just, lifted before i just i just get you just really exploded like, you just just blew up yeah God, it makes it too hard to roll over his head you know big old chest is in the way you can't roll over in bed right like, do you know? Do you know how much like most people who have trained their entire their entire adult life, right? Do you know what kind of depraved things people would do to have that as an actual yeah. problem? God, I don't want to lift weights because yeah, I just get too strong. I get too strong. <laughs> I get too strong. I get too big. I mean, my muscles get all these separations in them and stuff, and these veins on my forearms pop out, and that's it's just so awful. Uh, you know, the general public. Will I, mean, I? What do you do with them? You know. No, you give them the you give them what the second the them? second set of well, therapy. Let them come in and do their thing and and all that. But and you know, take you, their money. Well, I mean, Big Daddy Warbucks pays our bills, so right. So right. I don't have right. to. Worry well, about you're that. gonna have a, a another experience with that coming up here pretty soon, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, you I'm know? about to be unemployed. So. <laughs> jobless. <laughs> Well, uh, maybe we'll find you a sidewalk someplace you can, <laughs> you know, call your own little part of the world. That'd be, put a chair outside the gym. Put a chair outside the gym, sleep underneath it when it's raining, that sort of thing. <laughs> That's fine. He can do that. I can use him for other things inside during the day. I mean, that would that would fit in the neighborhood that, that it's it, in. It wouldn't hurt a damn thing in the neighborhood. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I'm surprised we don't get more comments about that when people show up for seminars. Ripito, what's going on across the street? I don't know. Always remember the, you the, just the like, problem across the street is the absence of a hot fire. That's, <laughs> that's the primary problem. There's been no fire over there. I always remember. Oh, now, now that that now that that's out there, the damn thing burns down. Who gets right? Right. I'm gonna get arrested. That's what I. That's what I'm. Be like, you don't think it was the meth lab? <laughs> yeah, it might have been the meth, the meth lab. 
I remember yeah. pulling up to the gym and I remember you just like sticking your head out the door. I didn't have my door open, window down or anything like that. And I could hear you from across the street, across the parking lot going, you don't want to could park there. <laughs> I was like, yeah. all right, I got it. I think I, I, think I need to move yeah, my car. Yeah, he, he was trying to park across over there in front of the apartments. I just wouldn't yeah. do it. Don't do that. Well, anyway, what else? What else you want to talk about? Anything fun going on? And I'm just doing some ranch hand work this week. Oh, like I'm on my last bit of leave before I leave the military. Just trying to get our house here in Wichita Falls in order. Yeah. Well. Well, that's good, I suppose. Uh, you know, there's not any good pizza in Wichita Falls. If that if that influences your decision of whether to stay or not. No, so what influenced Somebody my decision needs- was I drug Micah all over the, the Pacific for the last fifteen years. So yeah, I gave her the gave her the option to be, be she, close to the house. She got right? to pick wherever we went and so she said yeah. Wichita Falls. Yeah. Well, that calls her mental health in question, <laughs> doesn't it? But but, you know, here we are. So uh I tell you what she needs to do. She needs to open a a, a pizza place. No, well, you wouldn't eat anything that she bakes, anyways. But you should I, see her. I would. You should see the I've cakes. Eaten her stuff. You should see the cakes that she makes. I've seen. I've seen the cookies she makes. Yeah, no. I know. I've seen the cakes she makes. She cooked supper for us one night. That night we had moose meat. Yeah, that was that was good. That was good, man. Yeah. That's as that's as good as elk. Oh, it's good. Sweet, tastes like elk. It's excellent. Whenever we whenever we yeah, move back here, I'll have her make one of her bunt cakes and bring one to you. I have about as much business eating a bunt cake. Well, you're just gonna have as to because Nick has eaten. I know, a bunt but cake. you. Eat a, eat a piece of bunt cake. <laughs> it's a little rip. Yeah, yeah, I will, but I I won't feel good about it. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not somebody who eats that type of stuff that often. But my God, it's good. Yeah, I'll bet. She's talented gal. There's no doubt about it. Well, Will, thanks for being with us. Our guest today has been Will Morris, Doctor of Veterinary Medicine. No, that's not right. (laughs) Doctor of Physical Therapy. (laughs) And he's. uh, He's uh, been a friend of ours for quite some time, and we're happy to see him leaving the Army and coming into useful service in the private sector. He'll be available for you very soon if you play your cards right, and we'll keep you guys posted about how to get a hold of him professionally if you need to. All right. Well, thanks, man. Uh, thank you. Enjoyed the, enjoyed the visit, and we thank you for joining us today on Starting Strength Radio.